Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Well, Dr. Scripture, what you intend to talk about in today's program sounds a little odd. You said today we were going to discuss some problems. Now, you're not planning on telling everyone about that little issue we talked about the other day, are you? (laughs) Scott, I don't even know what you're referring to. Oh, well, never mind then. (laughs) No, what I mean when I say some problems maybe could be better described as some tough questions related to creation science or creation doctrine that, well, (laughs) to not put too fine a point on it, are just plain difficult to answer. In other words, I'd say they are problems for creationists. At least they are for me. Hmm, so why bring them up? You know, that's a good question. (laughs) And even though I'm already starting to have second thoughts, Scott, I wanted to talk about some of these issues because, in the first place, someone asked me point blank about what kinds of problems I thought existed for creationists to answer or explain. And secondly, I think it's important that as people who say we love and seek the truth, we need to be transparent when we don't have all the answers and not put on a facade that pretends to have everything perfectly worked out and act as though we have 100% of the answers. And I think most people know that's the case. But hopefully when we're willing to admit that we don't have all the answers, it may result in a higher level of respect or confidence in their estimation of the answers we do share. Well, I hope so too, Scott. And like we always say, we want people's questions. Yes. And so when I got a question from a teacher asking me, what are some of the questions that I have a hard time answering? I thought, you know, that might make a good program. Now, you said a teacher asked you that question? Mm -hmm. Was that a teacher at the school that you recently spoke at? I mean, that was in Macon, Georgia, right? Yes. I had the joy of speaking recently to 8th through 12th grade students at the Covenant Academy in Macon, Georgia, an excellent private Christian K-12 through school. And at lunch, I ate with some of the teachers, and, well, frankly, they peppered me with questions. Actually, it was really quite great. (laughs) Okay, then. So what did you say when you were asked what you thought were the problems most challenging to answer as a creationist? Well, I offered a couple. The first, and I would say most important in my opinion, is the apparent segregation of fossils throughout the geological column. Okay, now hold on a moment. I think you need to stop and explain what you mean by segregation of fossils. Well, sure. (laughs) What I'm referring to is how there really is a definite trend in the layers of rocks as we go down further and further through the layers of the crust of the earth. And that trend is we find larger and more complex organisms in the higher layers and smaller, simpler organisms in the lower layers, and we don't seem to find the more complex organisms in the lower layers. That fact is one of the most prominent evidences that evolutionists point to when they claim that on the early earth only simple organisms existed, and then over time, and according to their timetable, we're talking about hundreds of millions of years, 
Those simple organisms evolved by natural selection into more complex organisms. New genera, new families, new classes, even new phyla. And so given that scenario, you'd expect pretty much what we find. No higher organisms in the lower layers. So the more complex organisms are segregated from the simpler ones throughout the strata that make up what we call the geological column. Now, those layers are considered to have been laid down by the flood, mostly all at once, according to most of the creation or global flood models, right? Well, that's right. And I've shared on several occasions that the flood models offer as an explanation for the segregation phenomena that what happened during the flood was organisms were sorted by size, and that would also relate to complexity in the settling out of objects in the layers of sediment. Just like you were sifting or something like that. Yeah, exactly. If you take a bunch of potatoes and keep shaking them up, the larger ones come to the top. And then another explanation, according to the flood models, is that the larger, stronger organisms escaped being buried by the flood longer than the simpler, seemingly earlier forms of organisms because they could get away and survive longer and therefore be higher up in those layers. Now, There certainly is some logic in that explanation. However, we also would expect plenty of exceptions in the sorting process if that's the only explanation for the segregation we find. But we don't find those exceptions, at least very, very few. So, for example, I don't know of any examples where we find dinosaur fossils and buried right with them, we find what would be identified as more modern mammals along with them. That, to me, is just basically very curious. I mean, I suppose a possible explanation for that is mammals and dinosaurs lived in totally different environments and never mixed back in the day. But that's not what we find today. The reptiles, birds, and mammals all live in the same environments. So even though we do find some fossils out of place, It is very uncommon, and so I find that segregation of fossils according to their depth in the layers of the crust a difficult thing for the creation flood model to explain. So I'd call it a problem. One, I think creationists need to continue to work on. But of course, on the other side, we have the evidence pointing to the fact that dinosaur fossils are not very old. For example, because of all the soft tissue that we're finding them. And so surely that would indicate that the dinosaurs and mammals, even man, lived at the same time. So I want to make sure everyone understand it's not that the problem of fossil segregation is insurmountable from a creation perspective, but it is an issue for creation theory as I see it. So, Dr. Scripture, you did say you discussed problems, plural, so I take it there's more? Well, yes, Scott. Another interesting problem I find for creationists to explain is the preponderance of marsupial organisms in Australia and their virtual absence on the other continents. Now, you know what a marsupial is, don't you, Scott? They're animals that carry their young in a pouch. Good answer. They're mammals, but their young don't develop inside the mother with a placenta. The very young babies are given birth and then crawl into the mother's abdominal pouch, where they latch onto a teat and finish developing in the pouch. So, Scott, are there any indigenous marsupials in North America that you know of? Well, how about a possum? That's it. 
That's the only marsupial natural to North America, the opossum. And there's only one in South America, and that's the shrew. And yet, there are all kinds of marsupials in Australia. It almost seems like most of the mammals in Australia are marsupial. Now, I don't know if that's correct or not. But anyway, there are all kinds of marsupials there that don't exist anywhere else. Of course, the most famous being the kangaroos and the wallabies. Yes. So the evolutionary explanation is that a marsupial ancestor was prevalent on the continent of Australia about 100 million years ago and then evolved into all the different marsupials that are there today. And since Australia was separated from the rest of the world, their explanation is that that is why all those marsupials are isolated mainly in Australia and not found anywhere else. They are all descendants of that original marsupial that started out on Australia. Then we might ask, what is the creation explanation for that odd phenomenon? Well, the only one I even know of is Ken Ham's. And what he basically says is, the marsupials, of course, along with all the other mammals, were on the ark, and those were the only land creatures that survived the flood. Well, then what happened was, the marsupials, being weaker types of creatures, were being chased by predators, the other types of placental mammals. We might think of, you know, wolves and bears and things like that. They were being chased. And so as they were being chased, they moved south further and further. And while there was a land bridge between what we would call today Southeast Asia through the Philippines and so forth to Australia, these creatures were continuing to simply move south. But then when the land bridge was covered up because of the melting of the polar ice caps, then Australia was isolated and a preponderance of marsupials found themselves in Australia, unlike the other continents, South America, North America, and so forth. Well, frankly, that sounds very much like a just-so story in my mind that we tend to accuse evolutionists of concocting so often, which they do. But I don't think we should resort to such stories as creationists. And I'm not trying to be critical of Ken Ham or those who think that that may be why Australia has so many marsupials. But I'm interested, frankly, in some more concrete, observationally based evidences to support whatever explanation we might offer. And not what I think more is just a just-so story to help explain one way or another why marsupials are found in Australia and not in other places. Now, having said that, on the other hand, the problem I perceive for the evolutionary explanation of marsupials being in Australia is that on the surface, even though it seems to fit their theory so well, I would ask, how is it that we find so many animals that are marsupials, and yet they are very similar to placental mammals, which supposedly evolved independently from each other. In other words, the uh, rudimentary marsupial gave rise to mice-like creatures and wolf-like creatures. I mean, a lot of different animals we also see that are very similar in the rest of the world, but they are placental animals. That is very, very similar coincidental evolution in my mind. So, in my opinion, there are difficult questions for both theories. But honestly, I think the evolutionary explanation is very compelling. So, again, 
I hope creationists will continue to work on developing some hypotheses to test, and someday, I do believe, we'll come up with some tested alternatives. Okay, well, Dr. Scripture, one thing you've certainly shown today is there is plenty of research to be done by creationists as they continue to develop a creation model to explain the natural history of Earth. Well, that's right, Scott. After all, we're talking about creation science, and the nature of science is to continually grapple with questions that we don't yet have answers for. Now, that's no reflection on the accuracy of the Bible. It's another example of the fact that the Bible is not a science encyclopedia, as much as I wish it was. (laughs) But I, as a creation scientist, find it gives us a wonderful foundation from which to study the created universe, today as much as ever. Remember, most of the great scientists of past generations believed the Bible was God's inerrant word, and with that worldview established the various scientific disciplines that we build upon today. And so even when we run up against difficult questions from a Bible-believing perspective, I always remind myself of what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. And that's not what I say. That's what scripture says. 